world for mutants, a land for mutants, a mutant land for mutants that only mutants can enter unless humans have special permission that is trying to be recognized as an independent state. Is this a microcosm for Israel? Wow. Yeah, I usually go to Deep Space Nine, talks about Israel-Palestine. I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm way out of my depth. No, let's go, dude. This is Quarantine Comics. Welcome to Quarantine Comics. This week, we conclude X Month with the latest and greatest X saga, Jonathan Hickman's House of X, Powers of X. Pox, pox! Hogsbox, as it's affectionately known, was actually two concurrent miniseries from 2019 to once again attempt a fresh take, not just for the X-Men, but all of Marvel's Merry Mutants, and I think it succeeded. I mean, maybe. <laughs> and as always, you can be the first person to email us what you think, qtdcomics at gmail.com. Seriously, our inbox is emptier than Genosha after Cassandra Nova did her thing. Too soon? Too soon? Anyway, Hogsbox. More than a reset or a reboot, it was actually something of a realignment, making some dramatic changes to all mutants in the Marvel Universe, respectful of all that had come before, but choosing not to be bogged down in so many of the conveniently easy, fan-friendly tropes of fan service. And it took the X-Men boldly into the future. You mean there's no Wolverine and Gambit fighting every issue? I'm sorry to disappoint you, True Believer, but underlying it all, you have a pretty novel Groundhog Day-inspired MacGuffin. Like that's Bill Murray as Psylocke in Bikini Bottoms. Every hipster's dream. So Hoxfox came out in the summer of 19, which was a bit of a pop culture vacuum, kind of as a monoculture desert. The MCU had effectively ended with Avengers Endgame. Game of Thrones came to a whimpering conclusion. And the inevitable disappointment that would be the Star Wars final film would not arrive till December. So what was there for a geek like us to be excited about? Nothing. Video games, maybe? Interaction? Uh, social interaction, if that's a thing anymore? We knew, all knew that there would be plenty of time for such frivolities in 2020. So <laughs> fortunately, oh God, I hate my life. Actually, I like my life a lot. I get to drink and read comics with my friend. Damn straight. Yeah, and force you idiots to listen to it. All five of you. So fortunately, one of my guilty pleasures is a podcast called The Infinity Podcast. And they got way too excited about this new weekly launching series by Jonathan Hickman, kind of taking on the X-Men. And Hickman was a writer who achieved indie success after similarly reinvigorating both the Fantastic Four and the Avengers with some pretty unique takes. So I got on the bandwagon and for 12 weeks straight, I had the weekly thrill, pretty reminiscent of childhood, of walking into a comic store to be surprised what was in the latest issue. Something, again, I had not done in many years. Again, I only stopped reading comics probably five or six years prior, Ryan, but I just wasn't excited by them anymore. Nothing other than some indie stuff. There's nothing exciting about superheroes for me. So I remember Wednesdays coming off my 7am train, waiting excitedly in line at Midtown Comics and sneaking into a phone booth at work with my morning coffee before even starting my day with my email or any meetings I had. Oh my God, your old job sounds really depressing. I want to write about it in an ad exchanger. <laughs> As you should. So Hoxfox has some big ideas. You've got Professor X, Magneto, and spoiler alert, Moira McTaggart making a dramatic shift to mutant domes place in the world. If you're intrigued so far, I'd highly encourage you to stop listening to this podcast right now and go pick up Hoxbox before we ruin something new and fantastic about a well-worn franchise. Again, it is a lot of the X-Men you know and love, but it's very different. And if you are as tired of the X-Men as honestly I have been for years, this is a good one. So seriously, stop listening, go pick it up. But anyway, if you have read it, and Ryan, I, I assume you just read it for the first time. I did. Yeah. So you're a fellow X-Men fan since childhood. I'm 
jealous that this was your first time to read it. What did you think? Yeah, man, you set the bar really high and, and I loved your, your enthusiasm. <laughs> I was more okay with it. I definitely enjoyed parts of it. Let's just begin with effusiveness. Hickman does some really interesting things with his X-Men story. I think Moira McTarget is typically in the X-Men comic books. She's sort of an also-ran. She's the X-Men's human helper. She's like to the X-Men as Jimmy Olsen is to Superman. She's probably the first person you kill in a comic normally. But in Hoxpox, she is central. And not only is she a central, she is the character that manipulates everything and really kind of catalyzes the action. And so I thought that was really, really interesting. Bringing new life to this character who traditionally is usually pretty dull. Yeah, she's the Groundhog Day MacGuffin. Yeah, she's the MacGuffin. Well, no, she's not the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is the thing that everyone's trying to get, like the bag of money or like in Mission Impossible. It's the virus. Oh, she's the eagles from Lord of the Rings. Well, yeah. So the Dua Machina, whatever, maybe the thing at the last minute that saves you. Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, I just totally butchered that. We should read that comic though. Ex Machina. Yeah, that one actually, that's what Quarantine Comics is for. (laughs) Yeah, so more is more important than she's ever been. Yeah, Moira is more important than she's ever been. And I like the way that the writer Jonathan Hickman put her at the center of the action. The book is actually really complex structurally because it basically follows nine or ten different timelines but it does it in a way that i think is actually pretty clear as to what's happening when it kind of comes together at the end and i think that's just really tricky maneuvering from jonathan hickman and also it's really tricky to do that because he does it in a comic book format he does have those occasional breaks where it's just text and infographics to orient you in the world but by and large he's actually pretty good at conveying visually this really kind of complex world that he's built and what i do like about it is it completely realigns all of the X-Men, repositions them in the Marvel Universe. It interrogates Professor X's vision, which was something that when we talked about the Grant Morrison run, that was something that we really liked Grant Morrison doing. And here, Hickman actually shows the evolution of Professor X's vision, which was originally man and mutant must live in peace, and now has become something honestly a little bit more aggressive. It's almost an entente with mankind. Well, yeah, and his address to mankind, he telepathically communicates to everyone and says, normally, I would have given you all of our gifts. They would have been yours, Mm. but you've been assholes to us. So now we're going to make you pay for them, right? Not through blood, but literally you are going to pay. You are physically going to pay us and recognize our nation state. I I just wanted to get your take on that because it's to me a 180 almost of uh, maybe a 160 of Xavier's (laughs) original vision, right? Because it's sort of like man and mutant must live together in harmony. And now it's sort of, yeah, you know what? We're going to carve out our niche and we'll work with you guys, but only if it's mutually beneficial for us, which is a really steep shift. In a way, in in doing that, he's acknowledging that the dream of harmony, of living together in peace, that's totally over. I mean, it's not as radical as Magneto, where it's like, kill all humans, but it's somewhere in between. Yeah, but it's it's a compromise. It's a 160. It's maybe even like a 90 degree (sighs) turn. Here's what I will say that Hickman did well. He respects where the material has been before. And again, the constant trope of the X-Men is, oh, we're going to try Martin Luther King style versus, frankly, what he says is, is Wakanda forever. You know, like literally Krakoa forever. We will coexist with you guys, but we're going to coexist on our terms because we've tried the other way. You wiped out 16 million of us. Actually, I guess it was technically Cassandra Nova who did that. But anyway, but he, I don't want to say pays homage, but he respects where they've been. And he says it's time to evolve. And what I did like about what Hickman did with this twofold, he actually respected what Morrison had tried to do. And he was like, we need to take big, bold steps. This franchise is going to be interesting. But I think where he surpasses Morrison, not necessarily better or worse, is Morrison said, we're going to talk about mutants in the world, and we're going to focus on six or seven characters. And six or seven really interesting characters, some you've known, some you've never heard of. And with this, it's all plot. 
it's almost like I hate to say there's no character drama. It's all the characters are pawns to the plot of like set world building. Yes, that's actually something else I wanted to to bring up. But you know, I still kind of want to just think about just the radical shift of Professor X because you know what? It's just because he's been stable for so long, and the dream of people just working together and living together and accepting together, accepting each other without prejudice. Professor X had always represented the ideal, right? And that's the ideal. Everyone coexists harmoniously. And so for him to actually shift to, all right, you know what, we'll coexist, but you know, just stay on your side. Don't mess with us. Otherwise, we're going to strike back. But again, what I do respect about... I, this isn't a criticism. No, 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 no. I know. What I'm saying is it felt natural. Literally, the time further into the book where they show the moment when Professor X communicated to the world, the rationale doesn't sound like Magneto's rationale. It sounds no. like Charles Xavier's rationale. I love you. Man, I love you. I really wanted to coexist with you, but I'm kind of in a battered relationship here. It's kind of what he said. No, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's, if Professor Xavier kind of represents the ideal, the new ideal, as in the best that we can get is we'll coexist, but I don't really trust you. You get what I'm saying? That's what was striking to me. And I don't know if it says anything specific about the X-Men or the times that we live in now, but it just seems like this dream of harmonious coexistence, as utopic as it sounds, that dream is dead. And you have to almost mourn for that dream that the best we can hope for is business negotiation. I think... I think I do hear a little bit of the dream is dead. And I mostly agree with that point. Which is sad, man. That's sad. No, no. This is what it is. Uh, God, I hate to put this in the context of like Black Lives Matter. But Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. And this book predates Black... Well, Black Lives Matter existed, but not pre-George Floyd, Black Lives Matter existed. And worth noting, Black Panther the movie had already come out at this point, which had a lot of Afrofuturism. Another point worth noting when this book... So um, grasping at straws of maybe what inspired Jonathan Hickman. But Martin Luther King, I had a dream little black boys and white boys and girls as well, all playing happily. Professor X has always been the Martin Luther King character. Magneto has always been the Malcolm X character. And effectively what Professor X says is kind of what Ta-Nehisi Coates says is in uh, his book that got him on the map. In his book, he effectively talks about the black body has been abused and it's not right. And we need to understand that you cannot abuse us like this. So what Professor X is effectively saying in so many words is we want to coexist. We want to be peaceful with you, but we're first going to protect ourselves, which is why every mutant is now a citizen of Krakoa, birthright citizenship, and we're here for you. If you want to come, you can. First and foremost, we have have to protect our people. I don't think it's we are mutants, we are cutting ourselves off from the world. That what and what's interesting is again, the House of X Powers of X is not just a standalone thing. Now, going forward, all X-Men books across the spectrum, even ones Hickman is not writing, or X-Men appearing in the Marvel universe, this is the status quo of mutants, just like prior Cyclops had them living on Alcatraz, etc. They live on Krakoa, etc. etc. Go ahead. Is this a microcosm for Israel? Wow. Yeah, I usually go to Deep Space Nine talks about Israel Palestine. And I, I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm way out of my depth. No, let's go. Dude, this is quarantine comics. Let's go where we can with it. All right, let's do it. Say more. No, it's just the new Professor X philosophy, right? I know you cited Atanahazi Coates, yeah. who I have not read. Between the World and Me is the name of his book, by the way. But I'm just thinking about the whole world for mutants, right? A land for mutants, a mutant land for mutants that only mutants can enter unless humans have special permission that is trying to get recognition 
recognition and to be recognized as an independent state. Look, we want to coexist with you, but we will be here to protect ourselves. Everything that you just said seems to align with my limited understanding of the formation of Israel. Here's what's interesting to bring it back to comicdom. If you remember at the beginning of Black Panther, the central schism is we have to protect our people at all costs. It's either stay in Wakanda in this nation state, or why can't we take Wakanda's technology out into the world and protect our fellow black men? That was the fundamental conflict in that movie, right? Why can't we go back? That's what Killmonger wanted. That's what Killmonger's dad played by the guy who plays Randall on This Is Us. That was the fundamental thesis. And the mutants, and again, I've read a few of the books that came out after House of X. The mutants go out into the world. Mutants still live outside of Krakoa, just like Jewish people live outside of Israel, just like in Black Panther, even Wakandans live outside of Wakanda. But yeah, I think it's very Israel. There weren't any Palestinians being kicked out, I guess is what I'd say with Krakoa. Oh, not yet. There's still plenty of time. <laughs> we might edit that part out. Maybe, maybe it might be a good idea. <laughs> no, but there was no one living on Krakoa. In fact, Krakoa was an island that wanted to kill them. If you really go deep in giant size X-Men. It was a villain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a mutant island. Yeah, I think they kind of allude to that. So I also want to talk about the lack of human conflict within within Hoxpox. That's always been the X-Men's thing. Pretty much every X-Book, there is a soap opera, right? The B-plot is a soap opera plot. Whether it's Jim Lee or Grant Morrison or Joss Whedon, there's always these uncomfortable interpersonal relationships between different members of the X-Men. And that was pretty much absent here. Well, with some exception. You know, exception might be Moira, but even... No, I was actually going to say where there are micro-villains. Yeah. Well, I was going to say Emma Frost. Emma Frost's interaction. She literally tells Magneto, are you crazy? You want to put all the mutants on an island again? That's not what I meant. No, here's what I would tell you. You are right. There's not as much character-driven conflict in here other than establishment conflict of how would people right. react to this? How would Apocalypse react to this? How would Emma Frost react to this? How would Ambassadors, how would Submariner react to this? How would the Fantastic Four react to this? I've read the first volume of New Mutants, which came out after this, the first two volumes of Marauders, and the first volume of X-Men. Going forward, there are conflicts. Threads are established of drama and conflicts with these characters. But this book was all about setting up a new status quo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, for sure. No, I'm not saying that this as the reason I didn't like it. I'm just kind of noting this as a departure from the X books, where the X books in the past tend to really kind of revel in the human drama. And this one, because he's really more set on world building and establishing a foundation for future X-Men stories and Marvel Universe stories that have mutants. This one really took what had been really a common characteristic of the X books and just shoved it aside. And so it felt a lot colder emotionally compared to previous X books, which often have those soap operatic emotions. So that was a distinguishing point with Hickman's run compared to others. Well, absolutely. There's a couple of scenes in the book that nod to the past. So a couple being like the scene where they're all celebrating. The first scene is Cyclops with his arms around both Jean Grey and Wolverine, two of his best friends in the world. It's effectively a love triangle. And that alludes to something that there's an infographic in the new X-Men book you should see that alludes to, okay, these guys are okay. The following scene shows Jean Grey taking a beer over to Emma Frost, right? Who yeah. basically took her man. There's a couple of other moments and beats like that. Even there's a moment right before Professor X, I want to come back to Professor X in a second, but there's a moment right before Professor X broadcast to the world and Magneto in a callback to every conflict they've ever had and a couple of the moments that they have. At one point early on, he's like, I will fight you. I, I'm in it with you for this, but I'm not conveniently here for you no matter what. I will still be a thorn in your side. But there's a later moment when he's about to address the world a few months later where he's like, Charles, whatever's happened between us, we're good now. There's moments and beats of drama that call back to the entire history if you've read all of the other crap, I guess. Yeah, no, definitely that's true. And what Hickman is trying 
trying to do is he's trying to consolidate all of the lore from the past 60 years, who knows, that has been building up with the X-Men and put it all into like a single storyline. It's like he's trying to smush everything together, re-architect yeah. the X-Men's foundation and let it function as a platform for other writers to go wild with. There's going to be an Xavier Magneto schism. I mean, they allude to that in the timeline. So it's, it's inevitable that there's going to be some run-ins with Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister, even though the book ends with them all as allies. If anything, it's setting up a powder keg, right? Yeah. Well, I've noticed Marvel does this a lot. I'm thinking like Warren Ellis when he takes over Moon Knight or Karnak or something like that. He was brought in to reimagine the foundations of the character, reimagine the originating lore. And then after workshopping it, he'll hand it off to some other writer who with that foundation can run wild and that seemed like what Hoxpox was and this is actually where i got a little bit disappointed with it because it's essentially the book's fundamental purpose is to set up the lore for other more interesting stories and there are times when it actually read like a pamphlet in fact there are times when it literally is a pamphlet telling you the rules of the world and those are <laughs> moments when i was like okay, this is cool but also the central drama is not going to be in the story you're just setting stuff up like the wikipedia entry you read before Game of Thrones <laughs> to, to understand who all these characters are. That's what Hoxpox is. And that's where I felt it had tremendous ambition, but at the same time, it really didn't have any ambition to tell an interesting story. I only partially agree to that. Think about it this way. To your point of like world building, you could say the Bible's an interesting story. How did Moses find the tablet? How, you know, the Ramayans an interesting, the foundational stories are interesting if you know what they are. And I think because to your point, this is so foundational, it forces itself into plot more than character. And I think, yes, and, and there's a lot that comes after this. This is chapter one, knowing there's 10 other chapters immediately following this. Right. But I've only got chapter one to read. The other 10 chapters haven't been written yet. And like the thing with the Bible is that obviously it's so old that so much literature, so many movies, so many plays, so many pieces of art come from the Bible. They're reinterpretations of biblical stories. So you've got centuries of texts and art and literature. Hoxpox so, came so out in 2019. So it's hard for it to have that same mythological structure, especially since many of the stories that it's promising or it's setting up haven't been written yet. Well, they have. We haven't read them. We have one year of stories from the post-Hoxpox world. So to be fair, post-Hoxpox, I think there's now six or seven X books. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> the lessons from the past never learned. <laughs> No, they're all very different directions. What what little I've read and some of the promo material I read of them. So there's one X Men book. There's X Force. There's Excalibur, which is apocalypse and mystical stuff. There's New Mutants. Is there X Factor? I don't remember if there's X Factor. Marauders is the one that's really good. If you only read one after reading Hoxbox, read Marauders. But there's four or five or six, and they're all on Hickman only does two of them. And we're one year on, so about 12 issues of six titles have been written, have kind of stemmed from this book. That again, only because it was a weekly series, only lasted three months. I want to challenge you on a couple of things. And you've called one of them out. You've actually called both of them out. I do think there were moments of really good individual stories within this foundation setting. They, they all 12 issues weren't these stories that you wanted, but the two stories are the assault on the master mold. Mother mold, mother mold. Rummage. Yeah. So that one, great action sequence. Yeah. Again, you didn't like how it ended, but they all die. And they all come back. I know. I did like how it ended. I didn't like what happened after the, it ended. <laughs> Even though they show you in the very first issue. They show you. That's another reason why I didn't like it. It's like, I bet I know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah, it does. Well, um, I, I remember when I read it, I thought it was going to be time travel. Itself. But the other one, and it read like a Doctor Who episode, frankly. 
frankly. Oh, yes. The, the Moira episode. Moira is so good. Yeah, I agree. When we shit on a book, we don't shit on all of it. We leave some parts relatively <laughs> untarnished. And the Moira stuff is great. So that's what I began the episode by saying. I like the repositioning of Moira and McTarget. Previously, a human sidekick in this one, her power is just so listeners know what the hell we're talking about. Her power is reincarnation. So she dies and then she's born again with all of the memories of her past and she relives a timeline. And that gives her the opportunity to change things, change the timeline, change the direction of the world. And that's why she is uh, foundational to this whole thing because she's the one who really influences the new direction of Magneto and Professor X and the rest of the mutants. Here's one thing that's always bugged me. I, I definitely want to come back to Professor X in a bit. But one thing that's always bothered me, like I can suspend my disbelief that a guy can have a super soldier serum um, and fight or Spider-Man can get bitten by a radioactive spider or, or even a lot of the X-Men. Cyclops can shoot blast from his eye, even though like, where does the energy come from? You know, basic matter manipulation like Iceman and even Storm. Wait, isn't Cyclops solar powered? I thought they went the Superman route with him. Yeah, yeah. he is solar powered and it's not a laser. It's a force blast. I just want to ask one more thing. If Cyclops shaved his head, do you think he'd get more solar power? Like if he like was bald and he was absorbing more sun that way? No, but think about it this way though. Technically, hair absorbs even more because hair is dead skin. And so the surface area of your hair is more than the surface area of just a shaved head. If it's dead skin, though, if it doesn't do anything. It's just like... Well, he's a know. mutant. Maybe it's not dead skin. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I can suspend my disbelief for basic powers. I actually have trouble suspending... Like Iceman is a great example of one I can suspend disbelief for. If there's not moisture in the air, he can't affect it. He can't freeze it. What I have trouble suspending disbelief on is where you literally can rupture space-time or the yes. fundamental forces of okay. the universe. So more reincarnating... Even like Forge being really smart. Okay, maybe he has like a plastic brain like Professor X. But it's just, it's a convenient power to have. It's a plot device power. And I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I love the Bill Murray effect. But. No, you're you're right. I, I totally agree with you there. What I liked about the Moira chapter is her evolution as a character. And I think that's the only time really you see uh, this interesting evolution of, of this woman who goes from trying to end mutantdom to align with different people from Professor X to Magneto to Apocalypse. So there's this, this huge shift in her character in those short stories. And I just kind of liked seeing this evolution across different timelines. And that's the, really the only time you see it. But you're right. Totally her power. I mean, I, does the world end? with Moira like if she dies does that mean that timeline stops to exist and she gets reincarnated in another timeline or does she actually go back in time and you know all of these weird or is it like the, or is it like the onion from black science like is every reincarnation a new quantum reality so the other one still exists the one that she fucked up prior right exactly so she's starting over in a newly created reality like the universe is born with her that's not a thing that Hoxpox is really capable of addressing. They don't want to address that. That's basically the way they keep retconning the X-Men's history, basically. More is part of the retcon. When she has one with Destiny and call it Lifetime number six, she finds out that she can only live 11 lives. Wasn't that two? Because that was when she tries to kill. Yeah, somewhere in there early on. It's actually no, because the first one is normal life dies. <laughs> Second one is gets on a plane, plane crashes. <laughs> and oh, like, right. it, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. But anyway, she finds out that she can't do this forever. This isn't true Bill Murray, Groundhog Day. This is not Ad Infinity, right? She has 11 shots. And what this book presupposes is her 11th shot is the current Marvel Universe. So it's basically, to your point, retconning saying the Maura McTaggart we've all known and loved this whole time has known it all and has been living these different lives. So much so, because they retconned two interesting points in it. She, 10 years ago, pseudo, you know, however comic book timelines work, she went and talked to Magneto and Professor X and they went and started collecting DNA. Like, that happened 
in this timeline. And I kind of don't buy that. That's what uh, it makes sense. It makes sense for the, the sake of the plot, but it doesn't make sense for you definitely wouldn't want Hickman to come in and say, oh, this is a brand new Marvel universe. But it, it kind of is. It really kind of is. Oh, it, it is. There's no way it can't be because Moira converts. I mean, I understand Moira McTarget's last existence is literally the only existence where she A, has the last name McTaggart and B, has that son Proteus, who has been a character consistently in Marvel stories. But at the same time, she meets Professor Xavier early when he's still walking, plants a seed into his head of like, here's everything that happened in the past. And one would presume from there on out, Professor X would make his outreach to Magneto. You know, past stories where Magneto pulled the adamantium from Wolverine's head and then Professor X became onslaught. That didn't happen. Yeah, in theory, he's known this all along. Yeah, that happened in other timelines. That doesn't happen in this timeline. So it's really just a reinvention of the existing X-Men lore. But in a way that's both consistent with what happened in X-Men stories in the past, but also in a way that just basically says a lot of the stuff didn't happen. Yeah, it's fine. Like, I'll go with it. Like, I can actually suspend my disbelief for that. Like, it's... Yeah, to an extent... Yes, normally I can, but also because Hickman is really diving into these alternate timelines and the the alternate timeline situation is so foundational to the story that your mind can't help wondering about how this actually works, especially since Hickman is so meticulous about piecing together the rest of the world. It almost feels like this aspect is, which is foundational to the story. The fact that he doesn't explain it is just kind of an oversight. That's fair. And you know, one of the infographics I spent most of my time coming back to over and over again was the Moira timelines, right? And they Mm. flesh it out further in, in deeper issues. And you almost wish the X-Men we had known before, right, with Grant Morrison and Joss Whedon and Chris Claremont, maybe that was timeline four or timeline five, where Moiris always was dumb, maybe only living three timelines worth of life, but more or less wasn't on timeline 11. And what this expects us to accept is that Moira we've been reading about all along, including in the Jim Lee run, <laughs> knew all this shit. And yeah, it's kind of hard to buy. I just, do you think by now listeners are confused? Well, I told everyone to read it <laughs> at the beginning. Because it's like every time you start talking about timelines and, and you, there comes that moment where your brain just twists in on itself and like falls down. As someone from Avengers is like, that's not how time travel works. That's my favorite line when they're trying to explain what they're doing. Here, I want to come back to my thing about Professor X. So there was a yes. lot of theory. So throughout this whole book, Professor X is wearing a helmet. And that's actually a trope back to some of Hickman's other writing with Reed Richards. But people are like, is it actually Professor X? And I loved that like doubt I had in my mind because you said it earlier. It's like, is that really what Professor X would do? And you never see his face. Is this actually him? You hmm. in, the, in the modern era, you never see it. And just so you know, spoiler alert, I, in the X-Men book that happens after Hawksbox, there's a really good scene where Professor X, Magneto, and Apocalypse all in suits go either to the UN or Geneva or something like that. And there's no helmet on Professor X. So I think it is. Been, it has been him all along. That's interesting, actually. I never thought about that. But it would be a nice twist if that weren't actually actually Professor X. Yeah, they pull a Zorn, right? Yeah, and then they retcon it because <laughs> Moira dies. And actually, she's got another life that nobody knew about. It's all good. And yeah, they, they change it up yet again. I just... Could Apocalypse manifest a suit? Like, he's a shapeshifter, right? So could he manifest, like, a really well-cut suit over his giant monster body? He probably could. I wonder if he's ever tried to do that. Well, he does. He does? Wait, is there an actual panel where he does that? I don't I don't remember No, no, that. but he, he shows up in a suit. All he makes the choice to wear a suit. Oh, I gotta check. I totally missed that. that. That's actually in the comic? Not in this one. It's in the new X-Men book, which comes after this. Jesus Christ. Okay, so I'm sorry. I'm a little bit behind. I did not realize that Apocalypse had, in fact, put on a suit. <laughs> what happened was, I wanted to do this episode sooner because I was so excited to read Hawks Fox, and 
And I like to read these right before the episode. So I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to catch up on what happened. So the week prior to rereading Hoxbox, I read all the stuff that came out. I probably biases my brain a little bit. Actually, I just want to ask you, how did the stuff that came after it, how does it read? Does it feel fresh? Does it feel interesting? It's not all equal. It feels fresh because it's on this new foundation, this really fertile foundation of this new world that's been built. The new X-Men book is actually, I haven't read all of them, to be very clear. It's whatever the library had on their ebook reader thing. The new X-Men book is interesting. It's okay. It's fine. It's by Hickman. Marauders is fantastic. It's so much fun. It's a fun romp. You should just read it. It's Kitty Pride on a pirate ship and her and uh, Emma Frost relationship. Nightcrawler's in it, carries a sword. It's great. Actually, does this have anything to do with the marauders that killed all the Morlocks? Like that that dark story? No, they, they, just, they just take the name on. Basically, as you know, in Hoxpox, not every nation chooses to recognize Krakoa, the mutant nation. But there are still mutants in these countries. So what the marauders are there to do is to go save the mutants in Russia, in Iran, etc. So it's pretty interesting. And in Hoxpox, they have have Sebastian Shaw be on the Quiet Council, the ruling council of Krakoa. And so it's kind of the black market of all of this. So it's pretty interesting. And Kitty Pride is the main protagonist. And I have a soft spot for her as a character. The other book that was really also a fun romp was New Mutants, which is also by Hickman. So New Mutants and Marauders, I think, are the strongest of the bunch. I have not read Excalibur or X-Force. The only other one I read was X-Men. But anyway, one thing I really enjoyed was actually the world building, like all the government West Wing shit of like, we're going to talk about diplomatic immunity. We are going to talk about founding law. So there's one subplot in this. I think that was fascinating. And it's Sabretooth's subplot. And I don't like Sabretooth as a character at all. And he's effectively the character that he's always been, a mean Wolverine. And there's like this subplot of what Sabretooth does with this newfound immunity, how Sabretooth goes to court, and how Sabretooth uh, applies his immunity, and then the mutant laws that are founded because of Sabretooth. And I thought that was a great story that took place over multiple issues of threads being planted. Yeah, and your thoughts on the West, the West Wing stuff? Yeah, not my favorite, actually. <laughs> I liked it when it started out because it kind of grounded Krakoa. It gave Xavier a mission. Like, this is what I want. I want to be recognized as a country. So I like that when it was sort of foundational. And then I did actually like most of the Sabretooth storyline because it it is a break, I think, from the action. But towards the end, I felt like it was all kind of talking heads, mutant C-SPAN. I would love to watch mutant C-SPAN. Come on. I think mutant mutant C-SPAN would have more C-SPAN than mutant. And that's my problem with it. And that's also my problem with it as it shows up in Hoxpox. And it's not just the diplomacy talk. It's that around this time, there's a lot of backstory. There's a lot of backstory about the phalanx, alien race. There's backstory around, I forgot, a whole bunch. At the end, Hickman is just piling on the backstory. And so when we get the mutant C-SPAN, it doesn't feel like a break from everything that happened. <laughs> you know, as it does in the early, it's usually it's usually kind of comes in the middle of like action sequences. So it's like, okay, we're going to slow down now and show you law and order. Um, <laughs> at the end, it's just like another pile of talking heads giving me information and instructing the future writers what to do with the series. It's literally done in four uh, pages. Man up. I'm not talking about just that. I'm talking about the fact that the entire end of Hoxpox was exposition. Here's why we want to join the Phalanx. Here's why you're not joining the Phalanx, Moira. Mutant C-SPAN. Oh, Eric, didn't we do good? Look at this utopia. <laughs> oh, Mystique wants Mystique's bargaining chip. And it's like a series of people just telling you. So shit. there wasn't... Well, I think what you needed, uh, like a classic Act 3... 
like action set piece, some big conflict. It's almost like, yeah, yeah, you do. That's what's missing. You know what would have been great, actually, is more action at the front of Sabretooth and Mystique and the Fantastic Four and all that shit up front for the fun X-Men action you come to expect. And the end action should have been almost in parallel to Mutant C-SPAN, the mission. And then the very end should have been the resurrection. So you open with resurrection and you end with resurrection. Well, I say just throw out the resurrection altogether and keep everyone dead. I know that's not going to happen, but I think you have something there. The way that all of the action kind of like happened in the beginning and then it went to C-SPAN mode like towards the end was frustrating to me. But I also think the other issue, it's not just the where the action sequences happened, it's what they represented. There are moments that have these big buildups like the assault on Mother Mode, which I thought was amazing when it was happening. I thought it was just an amazing depiction of both the heroes as they try to infiltrate this enemy base and then even the villains who have their own concerns as they're trying to bunker down against the mutants. And then of course it ends with the ultimate sacrifice. The entire team is killed. It's an amazing sequence. And then there's the other big conflict involving Nimrod, which has a lot of pages. And the issue I have is that it felt like those conflicts ultimately didn't amount to anything. Like the result of the conflicts, I guess they destroyed the mother mold, but I'm sure she'll be back knowing how comics are. You know, it didn't have any really permanent consequences. So the stakes suddenly, initially they felt like this huge buildup, but at the end you realize, ah, it's just an excuse for a cool action sequence. And the same thing with the Nimrod stuff. What it ultimately ends with is, I guess, absorption into the phalanx. I don't know. It was just one of those stories, these conflicts that you thought would have more import than they actually do. Here's what I did like about all the future stuff, other than just cool costumes and new characters, is the present timeline, you know, X-Men's year zero to year 10 when House of X happens, supposedly, is all kind of building. Oh, it's, it's all great. We're building to Utopia because of this Warren McTaggart reincarnation thing. But what year 100 and year 1000 show is even in this... Actually, I think a couple of those are more as lifetime number six is what they reveal at the end. Actually, once I realized that the second time around, it kind of pulled the rug out from under me. But what I was going to say is House of X is about year zero to 10. And Powers of X, the concurrent uh, miniseries, is about the past years 100 and year 1000 is it shows that the world goes to shit. So that's what I like. It's like we built a Utopia, but it still all falls apart. But... And this is where the the more thing kind of sucked for me is like when I discovered all of that year 100 and year 1000 shit, similar to Grant Morrison's X-Men, by the way, just gets undone because, oh, it was surprise. It was lifetime number six. It wasn't lifetime number 11. I wanted the dark future to be lifetime 11. And then you don't know if she comes back. So you think this is Moira's lifetime 11. Wolverine kills her, but even she doesn't know if she's coming back. Yeah, no, what bothered me there, honestly, was just the fact that the alien didn't see it coming. I mean, they make this big show of this alien being able to predict every everything in advance and basically he goes down and does a traditional supervillain trope of monologue wolverine somehow manages to kill the alien and then kill moira therefore redoing it's just like one of those things where it's a stupid mistake by the villain that you just think okay the only reason that happened is to basically explain shit to the audience what i actually didn't appreciate about it is in the villain monologue he says that's where we're gonna keep you alive we're gonna put you on a planet separately and then Wolverine's like, okay, thank you, snicked dead. Yes, like, what the hell? Like they like, knew he, you didn't they, see that coming? Yeah, even the villain should have seen that coming. What's the benefit of, I mean, in fact, the villain should have, because remember in the very beginning, when the villain is first introduced, they're like, I can predict your move before you even thought about it. And it's just like, oh, okay, but apparently Wolverine's the exception, as he always is. And second, what the hell is he even explaining that to them? Like, what's the strategic value in actually explaining your master plan? I mean, this is the usual shit when it comes to supervillains, <laughs> but that sort of trope has become such a cliche by now, you actually are surprised to see Jonathan Hickman deploy it 
earnestly. But but again, what I don't like is they didn't need to resolve the com. I did not like it's effectively like all this year 100 year 1000 stuff is not world building. Everything else in House of mm. X is world building. It's not world building. Year 100 and year 1000 don't exist anymore because it was more as lifetime number six. And mm. going forward, literally every X-Men book is effectively the continuation of Moira's Lifetime 11. Wow, Ryan, uh, you've got me hating this no, now. No, 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 you're totally right. The, what happens in the future doesn't matter because it, it matters in the sense of us, the readers, realizing that this is the, the worst case scenario. This is the threat. This is what could all happen. It's almost sort of like the White Walkers. It's sort of like this external threat. But the thing is, is that I'm almost certain we're never going to get to that threat in the X-Men books because there's so much drama and so much to cover present. I got it. I realized why it had to be Lifetime 6. Because they show multiple times when Professor X reads Moira's memories in multiple lifetimes. And the one where he reads and realizes Lifetime 6 was hell, he's like, we always lose seriously we mm. always lose like most of your lifetimes moira you live to be about a hundred right but the time you live to be a thousand even then we lost jesus we're always gonna lose well we're still gonna try it magneto let's give it a go you know so i guess the future is year 100 and year 1000 are throwaway plot devices for house of x powers of x because they won't be come back yeah but to teach them a lesson we're always gonna lose and we're gonna lose badly so let's make the most of it let's be bold this time it is frustrating to me that that's the ultimate purpose that those serve, given how much time and energy we spend. Hickman kind of drops us in the middle of the action, so we have to kind of understand who these characters are, what this new futuristic apocalyptic world is, how it fits into the current storyline. So we as readers have to do a lot of work to figure out how it all fits, only to find at the end, it basically just amounts to a plot device that Moira uses to get Professor Xavier even more concerned. So all of that investment you put into understanding this future world that Hickman has built, all of the effort that Hickman has built to build this world, it doesn't really matter. It's actually, you, you could probably communicate the same relevant information in a single panel as Hickman did. Or in an like infographic. 30 pages. Or an infographic, for God's sake, which wish there were actually less of them in, in Hoxpox. I appreciated them in terms of understanding. It's just, this is why the book sometimes felt like a pamphlet. <laughs> but, you know, I had enjoyable parts. I want to have a segment of this podcast where I play a clip from Ben Fold's Song for the Dump, where he says, give me my money back. <laughs> and then the question is, do you want your money back, Ryan? Do you want your money back from this? Honestly, I mean, I got it used. <laughs> on Amazon, so it wasn't as expensive. You know what I actually do really like? I really like the art. The art was some of my favorite. I, it reminded me of like Brian Hitch. He did the Ultimates and he did the Authority. Kind of, I think Warren Ellis used to describe Brian Hitch as like a big screen sort of illustrator. And that's what House of X, Powers of X felt like artistically to me. The big screens. Yeah, Pepe Larraz did most of it. Yeah, the guy draws like, I feel like I'm watching a movie. And that's one of the reasons why I loved the assault on Mother Mold. The actual assault. It felt like a great action movie. It all comes back to formatting context. So with Red Rocket 7, when you read the big issues, same thing with Luther Arkwright, less about the size of the issues. To your point, the cinematic experience. When this came out, I was craving a pop culture heavy, like a Game of Thrones, MCU sort of thing. And I was reading this weekly. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was picking up the issues. And it definitely was a different experience reading it weekly, not knowing what was going to happen, having to wait a week to think about it. There's something to be said about the non-instant gratification of reading a comic book. I think that's definitely true. To think about, you know, binging a show on Netflix, binging on 10 episodes, you're going to inevitably lose your concentration and start looking at your phone. I remember when that show, The Night Of, was on HBO, and I was binging everything else, but that one, they only released one episode a week. But what I'd end up doing, of course, is after I finished watching the episode a few days later, I'd watch it again to see what I missed to see kind of the texture of everything. And I think the art in Hoxpox, there's a lot of texture there. There's a lot of detail there. There's a lot of really great storytelling. And it kind of 
it gives you the opportunity to, you know, luxuriate in it, I guess. So is there anything you really loved about this? Yeah, the art. I love the art. And I love the ambition. I love the Hickman's ability to reimagine tired characters. And I like how this just really felt like a culmination of the X-Men from like the 90s through now, where a lot of the concerns, the evolution of the social issue that that drives the X-Men, the the 90s trappings, right, of Sabretooth. He's in his essentially 90s costume. And so it's almost like a visually some of those costumes is a tip of the hat to, to how the X-Men have traditionally looked. Even Marvel Girl, right? That's her costume from the 1960s, I think. The green dress with the Wolverine mask. It's a tip of the hat to the X-Men comics of the 1960s. It's a tip of the hat to the Grant Morrison X-Men with the massacre of Genosha being a big reason why all of this is happening. So I liked looking at this as a very modern conglomeration of all of these X-Men trappings that kind of mean a lot to me having read a bunch of different stories from a bunch of different eras. Is it enough to make you want to read an X-Men book again? No, I mean... When I think about the Grant Morrison X-Men, I feel that that is really having kind of gone through all of this and thought about X-Men more than I have <laughs> since I was probably like 13 or 14. The Grant Morrison X-Men was superior to me and because it always felt like there was a threat and there was something that was kind of driving the final evolution of the X-Men. And Hoxpox, as I mentioned earlier, feels like the buildup of a bunch of lore. It almost feels like the, you know how those Marvel movies would always have, oh, the story will be continued and then Captain America, Captain America will return in 2022. It almost feels like there should be a disclaimer at the end that says, you know, the X-Men will return in X-Factor, Excalibur, the Marauders. Be sure to pick up those books. You know, it felt incomplete to me. I, I thought there was some truth in it. The thing I, I struggle with Hickman, he wrote East of West, which I thoroughly enjoyed, but his Marvel books, my first discovery of Hickman was his Marvel books. His run on Fantastic Four, which had some high points, but was kind of meandering. And that's actually when I stopped reading comic issues because of Hickman, but his was one of many. I just wasn't getting the, the constant fix and the excitement every month, right? Like I did with Hawks Fox. Then later on, when I was kind of like rereading comics that I'd missed over the, the hiatus I had with regular superhero stuff, I read his Avengers run and it was really dry. Like if you found this C-SPAN stuff dry, I just couldn't get into it. His Infinity run, his Avengers run. The I mean, the Illuminati thing was kind of interesting. And so I think Hickman doesn't do big budget action that well. He does do world building and left to his own devices, he can get a little dry. I think he's learned a lot of the lessons. He said earlier, he was laying the groundwork for a lot of authors to go play in a sandbox and hopefully have fun with the sandbox. And that has been kind of apparent with some of the books. I haven't read all of them, but I am enjoying the new status quo of the X-Men is very different than it's been before. And I think there is an outline of what they are or aren't going to do. They just, by the way, again, because I was researching it, they just released their first massive X-Men crossover post Hawksbox, which has something to do with uh, the Swords of Apocalypse and the other Krakoan Island that they allude to, etc. So I'm intrigued enough to keep checking back in with the X-Men, I guess is what I'd say. Let me re-answer that question. There are some parts that are intriguing, but not so intriguing that I feel I want to follow it all the way through. And it still kind of runs into the same issues I've always had with superhero comics lately, which is just the lack of stakes, the lack of drama, because everything is going to continue. Everything can be retconned. And in a way, this is almost sort of embracing all of the complaints people might have with superhero comics. The fact that death is never permanent. The fact that timelines can be retconned so easily. In fact, it actually integrates those complaints directly into the narrative. You know, it's a new direction, but it's still kind of 
kind of has some of the fundamental, I don't want to say problems with the superhero genre, but it still retains the reasons why I stopped reading it and being interested in it. There's an interesting conclusion there. I think the fundamental problem is superhero comics that are not creator owned, right? If, if you are a superhero mm-hmm. property that is owned by a conglomerate, be it Disney, Warner, Marvel, DC, etc., you literally have incentive to keep this brand alive, to keep Cyclops alive, to keep Wolverine alive, to keep Superman alive. Because they're brands. They're literally brands. They're literally brands. And it, they're not creator owned. When you do a why the last man right which again you can expand the ip it's going to be an fx show but it's a limited run that has 100 issues similar to saga right there's a beginning middle and end and the creator chooses what will ever be done with it again it's kind of why alan moore got so pissed with people touching his character so i think when it's creator owned and there's a finite run to it even walking dead everyone thought it was going to go on forever but walking dead had a beginning middle and end and when you can do that the stakes are more real no, I, I totally agree with you and we talked about this during saga which has some of the familiar trap and feel of a traditional superhero comic book. But when characters are hurt or when characters die in that book, you know, it is permanent and it leaves an impression. So even though it might have the look of a superhero comic book, it feels more serious in that you as a reader are going to be invested in the characters in a way you're not, I don't think, with the X-Men or, or Spider-Man, who you know they're never going to die for good. Let me ask my next to last question, Ryan. Did we enjoy doing X-Month? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you asked me a long time ago, what here's my favorite character? And I said something like Batman because Batman's the most versatile or some stupid thing like that. But I think really it is the X-Men because they're the ones that I grew up with. Those were the superheroes I followed when I was a teenager through interesting adventures and thrilling adventures and stupid adventures. They're the ones that I kind of grew up with. So for a personal reason, X-Men has... You know, I just bitched about, ah, oh, superheroes and the stakes. But despite all of that, the X-Men stories still just have a very special place in my heart. I just kind of love those misfits, even if nothing's ever permanent and they never die. A couple of thoughts I, I forgot really liked about Hawks Fox is similar to some of the better X-Men stories is if you got dropped into the middle of the X-Men after something like Hawks Fox or Siege Perilous, which is where they all go to Australia and Storm gets a mohawk, you don't know what the fuck's going on. What fundamentally bothers me with superhero comics is because these are brands, they need to be accessible. You need to jump into an issue of the Avengers and it needs to be recognizable and you know what's going on. What I've always loved about the X-Men at their best and Grant Morrison's run kind of did it well. Claremont's run did it well. I don't know who wrote Siege Perilous back in the day. I think it might have been Claremont. But if you got dropped into that stuff, you didn't know, you recognized the characters, but what the hell? Storm's got a mohawk? Professor X is wearing a helmet? I think when the X-Men make me uncomfortable, when I've lost my bearings with them, I think that's when they're at their best. When they keep playing the same old tropes, that's when it's weak to tie the knot on the thread of superhero comics. We talked about some of the alternative X-Men comics out there, right? Be it Doom Patrol, the kind of alternate misfits, or even Umbrella Academy, which is getting a lot of play. I'm really excited for us to go read some takes on the X-Men when there are more consequences that can be felt or more things that can be done with them. Yeah, I think you can definitely bet on seeing Umbrella Academy and or Doom Patrol on our reading list in the near, in the coming weeks. Yeah, that's the other thing. The X-Men, they've got a lot going for them. Just They're so weird. Each character is so individualistic and just weird and has their own weird issues. And sometimes that can't be fully explored because we've got a monthly series that's going to go on forever. But with Doom Patrol and Umbrella Academy, I think we're going to see what you can really do with the X-Men once you've completely unhinged. So Ryan, last question. What are we reading next week? Yeah, so next week, something completely different. I mentioned unhinged. This one is really, really unhinged. We are going to be reading Chester Brown's Ed the Happy Clown. It is definitely indie comic. It is definitely creator-owned. I think he was making it up as he went along, though he did start to put it together into a very strange story towards the end. It features a happy clown or maybe not so happy clown named Ed. It features a man who cannot 
stop defecating. It features a president whose head is mounted on his penis. That's what you have to look forward to. Another comic that makes me uncomfortable. I cannot <laughs> wait. We will see you next week. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. And remember, it's distasteful, this business of running a nation. I pray that we never get used to it. We never grow cold from it. We never learn to love it.